Welcome to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel, where you will receive the essential tools to take your faith to the next level. I am your host, Brian Ratliff, and I currently pastor Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. Here is the latest message preached from one of our services. Grab your Bible, pen, notepad, and get ready to jumpstart your faith. Alcatraz Island. It's a tiny island right outside San Francisco in the San Francisco Bay. It is 1.25 miles offshore from San Francisco, California. It is surrounded by freezing cold waters, many great white sharks, and scores of massive ships traveling along the high seas. The small island was developed with facilities for a lighthouse, a military fortification, a military prison, and a federal prison from 1934 to 1963. It is probably the most esteemed and fortified prison in the United States of America. This notorious prison was once home to America's most wanted criminals like Al Capone, but is now a museum with an audio tour that is accessible by a ferry. There were a total of 14 escaped attempts by 34 prisoners. It is believed by some that in 1962, Frank Morris, along with two others, John and Clarence Anglin, successfully escaped the fortified, unescapable prison. They made mannequins with napkins and paint and glue, and they put in their bids. So when the guards walked by their cells, they thought they were there. They took the ventilation system inside the cell and opened it up and found a secret compartment there and found another room and there began to make their own little boat that would lead them a raft to their freedom. The night of their planned escape in 1962, they put their mannequin in the bed opened up the ventilation system at the bottom of the wall underneath the sink, crawled through the wall, put the ventilation system back, and climbed up onto the very ceiling and rooftop of that prison. Somehow they found a blind section and the tower guards could not see on that island. And there they made their way over fences with barbed wire, still carrying the the little raft made of 50 different rain jackets, custom made by themselves. And there they find themselves at the water. There they inflate their raft, hop in the raft, and sail to freedom. Now, whether you believe that story is true or not true, is not really the point of today's message. The point of me sharing that with you is to let you know that we're not talking about the island of Alcatraz today. We're talking of a different island called Patmos. And today, as, as we think about Alcatraz being the home of many of America's most wanted criminals throughout the ages, we understand that the island called Patmos, located not in San Francisco Bay, but located in the Aegean Sea, just north of the Mediterranean in the Middle East, was home 
of many of Rome's most wanted criminals. Of such was John the Apostle. Today, when we think of persecution, we think of doors being slammed in our face and somebody giving us the little birdie and giving us some colorful words of speech. Our minds cannot fully comprehend what it is like to go through tribulation like the early apostles and those in church history underwent. A clear reading of the Fox's Book of Martyrs will clearly understand and reveal to us that many of the apostles, in fact, most likely all of them, by church tradition, suffered great torments and died a martyr's death. All except the one writing this book. Peter and Paul, we are told by church tradition, was martyred in Rome around 66 AD during the persecution under the Roman emperor named Nero. In fact, when Paul was writing Romans 13, Nero was in charge. Paul was beheaded and Peter was crucified upside down because he did not feel worthy to die the exact same way Jesus died. Andrew was sent by God to the land of the man-eaters, we're told, in what is now called the Soviet Union. Christians there claim that he was the first to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to that region of the world. He also preached in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and in Greece, and it is in Greece where we believe that he was crucified. Thomas was probably most active in the area east of Syria. Tradition tells us that his preaching went as far as East India, where the ancient Marthoma Christians reveal him as their founder. They claim that he died there when being pierced through with many spears of four soldiers. Philip possibly had a powerful ministry in Carthage in northern Africa and along Side him, that area was Asia Minor, where he converted the wife of a Roman proconsul. And in retaliation, the proconsul had Philip arrested and cruelly put to death. Matthew, the tax collector that we read in the Gospel of Matthew, ministered in Persia and Ethiopia. Some of the oldest reports say that he was not martyred, while others say he was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Bartholomew had a widespread missionary travels that took him to India, along with Thomas, and back to Armenia, and to Ethiopia and southern Arabia. There are various accounts of how he died, but we are told he was a martyr for the gospel of Jesus Christ. James, the son of Alphaeus, is one of the least three James referred to, one of at least three James referred to in the New Testament. There is some confusion as to which is which, but this is the James that we believe to have ministered in Syria. And Josephus, that Jewish historian, records and reported that he was stoned and clubbed to death. Simon the Zealot, the story goes by church tradition, ministered in Persia and was killed after refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. Matthias, the one who replaced Judas's apostleship in Acts chapter 1, we are told that he was sent to Syria 
with Andrew and died by being burned alive. Throughout church history, we see that God's greatest soldiers suffered greatly. John, the apostle, by the way, is the one who is the human pym in writing this great book of Revelation. And today, really, really, the theme of these verses is the vision of Jesus Christ. And if I could label anything as a sermon title, I guess that's what it's called, the vision of Jesus Christ. That is, when we, when we see this chapter, the, at least this section of the chapter, we see that God, the Son of God, the Son of Man, is revealed to John in a special, extraordinary way. And by the way, John is the only one of the apostles who is generally thought to have died a normal death and lived a long old life. We believe that he was one of the pastors of the church at Ephesus, one of the leaders in that church, one of the elders, and it is said that he also took care of Mary, the mother of Jesus, in his very own home. During Domitian, that is, you have Nero who served as the leader of Rome underneath Paul when Paul was alive. Now Paul is dead, and we see that Nero is gone, and Domitian is now the new ruler in Rome. And under Domitian's rule and tyrancy, we see that he was the one who persecuted Christians, had them killed and put to death. And it is by his hand that John is now isolated on the island called Patmos. We see that Domitian was, was under the rule during the middle 90s, and we believe that it is in the middle 90s A.D., 95, 96 years, give or take, of after Jesus was born, A.D., that, it, that is when God gave this vision to John. And we see that he received this vision he received the vision of revelation in complete isolation on Patmos. It is on this island that, that he was commanded by God to write down the vision that he saw, and which would later be called the revelation of Jesus Christ, according to the apostle John. And by the way, just food for thought, early Latin tradition, and we can trust some of these traditions. That is, it's not like a tradition like, hey, the carpet is, is red, so we got to keep the carpet red because it's our tradition. Tradition is kind of like oral tradition. This is what has been passed down from generation to generation, and it can be very well trusted at times, and we believe this is to be true. And so Latin tradition tells us that, that, that he one day was released after Domitian died, but we we're also told that some have allegedly subscribed that he was cast into boiling oil at Rome to meet his death. Whatever the case is, we see in verse number 9, in verse number 10, and in verse number 11, the first of four thoughts today, that is the tribulation. We see here in verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, that God promises us that all those who live godly in Christ Jesus is going to undergo some sort of tribulation, some sort of affliction, some sort of trial because of their faith. We see sometimes tribulation is a storm that comes through our life that is just part of life. But we see that this type of tribulation is not just a storm that is a result of life. This is a storm resulted as a persecution of one's faith. And we see that John 
was persecuted because of his faith. In fact, the tribulation, if I could elaborate, is this. John's tribulation was being exiled to the island of Patmos because of his faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse number 9. The Bible says, I, John. John is simply writing this letter, this magnificent, marvelous vision of a letter to these seven churches in Asia Minor. And the Bible says that he is calling himself a brother. That is, he, he is part of the household of faith. He knows Jesus Christ as his Savior. And it says he's a companion in tribulation. That is, in this time period, we understand that, that these believers were persecuted. You go back and you study the book of Acts and you read the first several, and really the whole book of Acts, we see that the church is persecuted greatly. And we see that when God's people undergoes persecution is when God's work is advanced to a greater capacity. Understand this today, that God is sovereign, and we see the sovereign hand of God in verse number 9. Sometimes we think tribulation is a bad thing. Sometimes we think affliction is a bad thing. Sometimes we think trials are a bad thing. And sometimes we think persecution is a bad thing. But understand this. Understand me today, that if John never went through this isolation on this island, we would never have this book called Revelation. Understand that God is the one who, who is in complete, absolute, total control of the affairs of mankind in this world, and he is orchestrating everything out for his greater purposes and a greater plan. We see that going on in verse number 9, how God would allow John to go to Ephesus, and how God would allow him to be the elder there, and to preach and to teach the word of God, and to exalt the name of Jesus Christ into his community, and there to allow Domitian to rule, there to allow a wicked tyrant to, to kill people because of their faith in Christ. And now, Satan has tried to kill God's soldiers. He's tried to cut out the tongues of God's soldiers so they could not speak. So Satan, perhaps gives Domitian an idea. Let's take John and throw him to an island there. He can never talk to anybody about Jesus. And what does God do? God shows up to John on this island and gives him a word. Man, God is good. And we see in verse number nine that there's two specific reasons why John was persecuted and went through this tribulation. Number one, John was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God. I don't know what the future has for us here today. But perhaps the church has grown soft. And has adopted the idolatry of liberty, if you will. That we have come so loose in our freedom that maybe God is allowing our freedoms to become under attack. Because he knows that when we idolize temporal freedoms, we will no longer have our eyes fixed and gazed upon the eternal freedom found in Jesus Christ. And so we see that throughout history, throughout history, my brothers and sisters, that, that these ancient apostles, they, they were preaching in an age when they were hostile to the word of God. We're preaching in an age where people are only hostile to God's words on days they don't like our message. And here we see that there may come a day, there may come a day in this nation, in this culture, that, when we, that we could be thrown in jail, thrown in isolation, exiled or killed because of our faith in Jesus Christ. There may come a day. 
And it is important that in this day of liberty, in this day of freedom, that we decide now that we're going to stand true to the word of God. That when God's word says something, that when God's word ultimately declares that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that we're going to stand and, and we are not going to recant and so help us, God, may we live till death do us part. John did that. He preached the word of God. And with God's help, that's what we're going to do. With God's help, it doesn't matter how hostile this nation ever gets to God's word. It doesn't matter how hostile this culture ever gets to God's word. We are going to, by God's grace and with God's mercy and with God's love and favor, we are going to stand firmly fixed upon the firm foundation of God's word. And we're going to herald it like we've never heralded it before. We're going to preach it like we've never preached it before. Because the saints of old did it by God's grace and so can we. And then it goes on to say, not just for God's word. You see, within God's word, we find a great truth. That is the truth of Jesus Christ. And we see that truth here in this chapter. But we see that John was exiled to Patmos, not just because of his, his, him preaching God's word, but John was exiled for his faith in the testimony of Jesus Christ. John believed not just God's word, but in the Son of God revealed in his word. John knew the Old Testament text. He knew the Torah. He knew the Pentateuch. He knew Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, the Kings and Chronicles, and Samuel. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. He knew about Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, Lamentations, Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai. He knew about them. Jonah, he knew about those prophets. But what he also knew was what he saw face to face when God the Son came and inhabited humanity. And there, so as he was preaching, he was, he was not just expositing God's word and the doctrines revealed in Scripture in the canon, but he was also lifting up one name. Not John's name, not Paul's name, but one name, Jesus. And that is the name that we are going to herald. That is the name we're going to preach. And that is the name we are going to testify and bear record of. The name of Jesus. The only begotten Son of God. This tribulation was something else. Sometimes it makes me want to wish for tribulation. So that God could show up like he did with John. But understand this. That every time we meet, God shows up. Every time we gather together. Every time we open up God's word, God is present. And then verse number 10, the Bible says that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. A lot of discussion about this phrase, in the spirit. Does this mean, here's the question that's being probed by many theologians. Does this mean that, that John was transported physically to someplace else? Or does this mean that John saw a vision in his mind? Well, I lean to the fact that John, he did not have a dream. This is a vision. There's a difference. When you have a dream, God shows up in a dream. You're asleep at night, and he gives you a dream in your mind. This is a vision. In a, in a sense, most likely, John is on this island of Patmos, and there he receives this vision in his mind, and he's taken to another place mentally. And he's seeing all these things that are about to take place. But then it says, on the Lord's day. So what does this mean? On the Lord's day. Does this mean on Sunday or does this mean the day of the Lord as the Old Testament writers spoke of and as many of the New Testament writers spoke of? Well, I would lean towards this thought. 
It is on Sunday when God gave him this vision, but God transports him in his mind to see the day of the Lord go down. And here it says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Understand this, that it is on Sundays that we read in the book of Acts that the church gathers together to worship Jesus Christ, to honor what? To honor the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it says that John is in the spirit, so he's, he's in another realm, if you will. And he hears behind him a voice. And this voice sounds like a trumpet. You ever heard a trumpet before? <laughs> doo 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 Yes, that was my lame imitation of a trumpet. But this voice that sounded like a trumpet said, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. He's literally saying, I am the A to the Z in the Greek alphabet and everything in between. And he is. He is. He is the first and the last. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And then he says, here's the words that he says. He says, what you see, write it in a book. I am thankful for the book. Not just the book of Revelation, but the Bible. I'm thankful that God spoke to these men in time past and commanded them to write down what they saw. And here we see that this is one of the first of many commands that God gives John to write down what he saw. Can you imagine being him, writing, taking that writing utensil and, and, and the papyrus or whatever it was he was writing on and jotting down these, these words that he's, that he's seen? And then he says... Send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. Ephesus, the Bible says, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These are the seven churches that were literal physical churches in Asia Minor. That is modern day Turkey. These are literal churches that literally existed. None of them are here anymore. They're dead, if you will. But these churches in chapter 2 and 3 will signify the seven types of churches throughout the church age that are still around today. You have the faithful church. You have the, the, the lukewarm church. You have the persecuted church. You have all these different churches that we're going to study in great detail. But this vision was given to John to write down and send to the churches. And so we see verses 9, 10, 11, the tribulation. John's tribulation was being exiled to the island of Patmos because of his faith in Christ. But now secondly, verses 12 through 16, this is kind of really the meat of the vision that John receives, at least in this portion of the vision. And so secondly, we see two words, the vision. Not just the tribulation, but the vision. So John's vision was of the glorified, risen Son of Man. John's vision was of the glorified, risen Son of Man. John, can you imagine the emotions going through his mind, what he's experiencing, being totally isolated from, from, his, from everybody he knew, his church family? And then out of nowhere, he is caught up in the spirit, kind of like Paul was in Corinthians. And then he hears a voice that sounds like a trumpet and begins to speak to him. And then in verse number 12, he turns and he saw the Son of Man. It is in these next few verses that we see kind of like the sevenfold characteristics of Jesus Christ in this vision. He empowers, intercedes, purifies, speaks authoritatively, controls, protects, and is glorified. We see this in these next few verses. And we see that, that really these, these verses 12 through 16 is all about the righteous indignation of our God. That is, he is our judge. 
God is our judge. God is my judge. God is the world's judge. And we will all stand before him and give an account. Notice verse 12. It says he turns to see the voice. Check it out, the the terminology here. He turns to see the voice. Not to see the one who is speaking, but to see the voice. So imagine how booming of a voice this was. And being turned, the Bible says that he sees these seven golden candlesticks. And we know that the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks are the seven churches. So the Bible has a way of always defining what it means. And so just go to verse 20, and you'll see what verse 12 is referring to. But then in verse 13, it says, And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like the Son of Man. Does that sound familiar to you, that phrase, the phraseology and terminology used there? Honestly, if you read this passage, it should make you think of one scene in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel. Remember that? One scene where those three boys, were, the three Hebrews were in that fire and furnace, and they looked down and they saw one like unto the Son of God or Son of Man. And we see That later in Daniel's vision, he sees the Ancient of Days in his full glory and splendor. So John now is seeing the glorified, risen Son of Man for who he was. We see that here in verse number 12, as it speaks about how in the middle of the golden candlesticks, or these seven golden candlesticks, there is one like the Son of Man. And here we see that that this signifies that John saw Jesus as the one who empowers the church of God. Do you want power, church? Get a hold of Jesus. Do you want power, church? Get a hold of the Spirit of God. Do you want power, church? Get a hold of God the Father. Do you want power, church? Get a hold of God's Word. That's what we need. We need God to empower us, to equip us for ministry. I like what the songwriter said. He said, all is vain unless God's Spirit shows up. And he's true. It's true. We need God's Spirit to empower us every time you teach a Sunday school class, every time you lead a Bible study, every time we go to war and prayer, every time we stand and worship God through songs, every time we hear a wor- the Word of God expounded and preached, we need God's Spirit to show up. I'm afraid, though, that most churches today could care less about the Spirit of God and more about the Spirit of man. We care more about the flash of this society than we do about the flash of the Holy Spirit of God. We need God's Word to empower us. We need God, the Son, the Son of Man, to rise and be the focal point of our ministry. John saw him. Clothed with a garment down to his feet. And gird about the paps with a golden girdle. John sees Jesus as the one who intercedes on behalf of the church of God. He empowers, but he also intercedes. This phrase, or this, these words here about the garment. It reminds us of the book of Hebrews, which reminds us of the book of Leviticus, which reminds us of the priests, and which reminds us of the high priest. How the high priest, they they were dressed 
not in the exact attire as yours truly, but in attire very similar. In fact, only three parts of the body were observed with the naked eye. That is the right hand, the left hand, and the face. That was it. And we see that in this moment, John sees Jesus clothed in a ray very similar to the high priest, which reminds us that Jesus is our high priest. He is our intercessor. He is our mediator. He is the one who goes between man and God the Father. Today, I am so grateful that I don't have to go into a four-walled booth and confess my sins to an earthly priest. I can bow my knees anywhere I am and at any moment and bow before the very throne of grace of God and confess my faults and my failures and my sins before him and him alone. And there is no man that could say, forgive you. Only God can forgive sin. And he is our intercessor. And we see that work here in verse number 13. We see he is the one who empowers. He is the one who intercedes. But then check it out now. In verse number 14 and 15, we see that he is the one who purifies. So John sees Jesus as the one who purifies the church of God. Notice here, it says, verse number 14, it says his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. As I was reading this, I couldn't help but think about how full of vanity our culture is. You see, when, when our hair begins to go away from us, we go to the Walmart and we get Rogaine. And we put it on top of our head to get our hair to grow back. Then when the color in our hair begins to fade and turns white or gray, we go to the stylist to color it for us. I, I found it interesting that Many people have tried to describe who Jesus, what Jesus looked like. I read recently that somebody said Jesus was five foot five, <laughs> that he was the average size of his day. How in the world could we know how tall or short Jesus was? I mean, I read that one in Second Balonians, right? Jesus is five foot five, right? No, come on, it's ridiculous. In fact, Every time we, we see somebody try to describe how long or how short or how black or how brown or whatever color of hair he had, we know that I know the true color. I know that you know the true color of Jesus' hair. It's white. And I've got a reference for you. So the next time... You're self-conscious about how your hair looks. Understand this, that Jesus' hair is white as snow. Signifying, I believe, of the purity and chastity and, and glory of God. And how he's able to, to wipe our sins as white as snow. And it says that his eyes were as the flame of fire. So if you're not happy with your hair, you can go get it changed. And if you're not happy with your eye color, all you got to do is go get some contacts. Because <laughs> if you don't like your blue eyes, you can just go get some green contacts and turn them green. And if you don't like your green eyes, you can go get some contacts and turn them red. And if you don't like your red contacts, then you can just go get the pink contacts and you can have pink eyes. We see that Jesus' hair was white as wool and his eyes were red like a fire. Of course, this signifies that God is our judge and that God is the one 
who is arrayed in full splendor and glory in his king and Lord. But here we see that this also signifies with the white hair, with the eyes like, the fl- like a flame of fire, and his, and his feet like fine brass, as if they've been burned in a furnace, it all signifies the purification process. Today, we, we go to the Walmart or Kroger, and we buy a pitcher, and we put our tap water in the pitcher, and then it purifies it so we can have clear, crystal clear, purified water. And you want to know how you can be purified today? It's not by putting yourself in a container. The, the way to be purified today is by soaking up God's word and letting it purify you from the inside out. Letting Jesus Christ step in and purify us of our imperfections so that God can make us perfect like his son. He empowers, he intercedes, he purifies, but then check it out now. In the last part of verse 15, we see that he speaks authoritatively. God is the highest authority in the world, period, in the universe, period, and there's none that can match his authority. John sees Jesus as the one who speaks authoritatively to the church of God. What is my final authority? It is the word of God. That is my final authority. And we see in verse 15, it says, and his voice as the sound of many waters. I've never had the privilege of standing on the United States side or the Canadian side of the Niagara Falls. But I am told by sources that when you stand next to that magnificent waterfall, that you cannot really hear the conversations going around you because the sound of the water drowns everything else out. The only comparison I've ever had is when I was at Dalton State Park and there's a small little waterfall there and I get up close to it and I hear the sound of the water hitting the ground. It's powerful. As I think about this, I think about how God is the highest authority and his word is the highest authority. But there's others that have tried to snatch his authority. I began recently to think about who the greatest evangelist of all time was. I began to think to myself, was it, was it Billy Graham? Nobody else ever preached to as many people as him. At one time in South Korea, he spoke to over one million people in person. One time, one sermon. It's a lot of people. Throughout the course of his lifetime, there's nobody that even compares. In fact, I would submit to you that you could add up all the preachers of history and how many people they've ever preached to, and it still wouldn't compare to the number of souls that Billy Graham's life touched. But is he the greatest evangelist? I begin to think about, what about Billy Sunday? You know, we're told that over a million people came to Christ in the early 1900s through their ministry of the Sawdust Trail of Billy Sunday. Traveling all over, setting up those tents. Then I begin to think about, what about George Whitfield of the Great Awakening? That we wouldn't have had the Great Awakening here in the colonies of that time in the 1700s if it wasn't for him. How he would go around and without any amplification, no microphone, he would preach to over 30,000 people. <laughs> Talk about a voice. <laughs> Didn't you know in the Greek when it says, you know, that booming trumpet of a voice that it really means George Whitfield's voice? <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, that's, a, that's a bad joke. I, I know. <laughs> I begin to think to myself, well, well, what about the Apostle Paul? Or what about Philip, who is actually called an evangelist? In fact, to my understanding, the only one in the New Testament who's actually called an evangelist. 
And I begin to think to myself, none of them are the greatest evangelist. You see, the greatest evangelist is unlike any other being that's ever been created. His beauty far exceeds any of God's creation. His ability and talents far exceeds any person that's ever existed. He has many apostles that serve underneath him who are traveling to and fro throughout the earth. This evangelist has led many people astray. This evangelist has taken many people, not to heaven, but to a horrible place the Bible describes as hell. And this evangelist is known as the prince of the power of the air, trying to rob the authority of God and his word. I submit to you the greatest evangelist He never sleeps, he never slumbers, he never tires, and never stops to lead people away from God. His name is Satan. But his word does not compare to the authoritative power of the word of God. Because it is at his word he will bow. It is at his word his tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And it is at at the word of God that he will spend eternity and the lake of fire. He, he empowers, he inter- intercedes, purifies, speaks authoritatively, but he also controls. Look at verse 16. The Bible says that, that he had in his right hand seven stars. God is sovereign. He's in control of all our affairs. And so when we see John going through this great tribulation, we understand this, that God is able to transform our tragedies into triumphs, that God is able to take our failures and turn them into successes, and God is able to take our trials and and our horrible experiences and turn them into a masterful peace, only pulled out in the shackles and trophies of man that God can turn and use for his great plan. He controls everything that's going on in the church. He is in control of all the churches that open and begin. He is. And he's also in control. Think about this now. God is also in control of every church that shuts down throughout history. He's in control of the ones that are birthed and the ones who cease to exist. God is in control. He's in control of the faithful church, of the lukewarm church, of the persecuted church, over all the churches. He's in control. But he also protects. Look at verse 16. It goes on to say, Went out of his mouth, went a sharp two-edged sword. This is the word of God. This is, as Hebrew says, God's word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. How do we combat the enemy, the great evangelist? We combat him with the sword of God's word. We hold it in our hands. We put it to memory in our minds. We we stuff it down into the depths of our hearts there so we will never forget God's word. So that when the enemy attacks, we don't pull out our M16s and our and our shotguns and our 12 gauges, but we pull out the very sword of God's word. And we use it to conquer. Remember what one of the reformers said in the 1500s or 1400s? He said, the Bible is like a lion. Just let it loose and it will defend itself. 
Today, we don't have to defend God's word, although it's great every now and then to have a message that is more apologetic and helps us understand why we believe what we believe. All we are called to do is to herald forth the message of the gospel and to lift up the word of God and preach it and proclaim it. And today, we're going to lift up God's word because God is the one who protects his church. He is the one who puts us underneath the, the wings of his arms and shields us from the enemy. But then... John sees Jesus as the one who is glorified through the church of God. He empowers, he intercedes, he purifies, he speaks authoritatively, he controls, he protects, but he is full of glory. Only him. And we see in verse number 16, it says, his countenance was as the sun shining in his strength. You know, maybe you're like me. Maybe you like to conserve that Appalachian power bill and electricity. And during the daytime, you like to go to your blinds and you like to open them up and pull your curtains back. And you notice that when you do that, the rays of the sunlight shine in. And you know what it reveals? It reveals all the dust, all of the particles that are floating in the air, and all the dirt. And yes... All of our houses are dirty. But you know what God's, with the rays of the Son of God does? It shines into this world to reveal to us that we are sinful. And the, the brighter the, the light of the radiant beams of the Son of God shines into our lives, and the more we see the mirror of our soul in God's word, the more we recognize and realize that our hearts are cold. Our hearts are darkened, and we need the light of the gospel to shine and to transform us. He will receive glory in this church some way, shape, or form. In verses 9 through 11, we saw the tribulation. We saw how John's tribulation was being exiled to the island of Patmos because of his faith in Christ. In verses 12 through 16, we see that John turns and he sees this voice and he, and he sees with his face the vision. That is, John's vision was of the glorified, risen Son of Man. But then, check it out now in verses 17 and 18. I want you to understand this. Thirdly, the reaction. In these next two verses, we see the reaction that John had. John's reaction after seeing the glorified Christ was falling before him in absolute awe. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Understand this, that it is in the mid-90s that John is writing this, this book probably 95, 96 AD. Jesus died sometime between 30 and 35 AD, just depends on who's dating. And so we see that for, for 60 years, John faithfully preached God's word and faithfully testified of Jesus Christ. And for 60 years, he, 60 years prior to this time, he witnessed that the, that, that the risen son of God that he saw at the last breakfast on, on the Sea of Galilee where, where they ate the fish, and there he saw the prince and the, and, and, and the marks and the hands and, and the feet and the side and the crown and the thorns. He saw all those marks and the prince. And here, for the first time in 60 years, the son of man reaches out his arm and places his arm on John the Apostle the one Jesus loved. And he says these words. 
do not fear. I've never calculated this, but I am told by those who have that fear not, do not be afraid, or be not afraid, some way, shape, or form, and, and that, that phraseology occurs 600 and 300, excuse me, 365 times in the Bible, so that's enough for every single day that we can understand this, that God has given us not a spirit of fear, and we don't have to be afraid of anything. And it says, I am the first and the last. Now, now by the way, why would John fear when he saw this Son of man, Jesus. Oh, it had to be scary. That's right. What a frightening day that was. He understood the Bible. He read the book of Exodus. He read the Torah. He, he read about, about, about those who, who could not see God face to face as man see or, or God would strike them dead. He understood that. So there he falls at his feet as a dead man. And we, I, I believe this. I'm leaning to believe that John feared because he witnessed Christ in his full glory. That is, man, sinful man cannot see God in his full glory or he will die. But then in the midst of the rays of the Son of God shining down on John, I think about how John feared because he was conscious of his iniquity. How when he was in the presence of the perfect, sinless, righteous Son of God, he realized how contaminated by sin he was. You know, we think about that song. I can only imagine. It's a great song. Not disregarding the message behind the song, so don't misunderstand me. But when we think about that song and really the story behind that song, you know, I, I can only imagine of what it will be like when, when we see Jesus. Just the, the writer's just laying out thoughts about what he's envisioning it will be like. But I say this respectfully. He got it all wrong. We don't have to imagine. We know what we'll do. As much as I love that song, the proper theological view of what it will be like when we stand before Jesus Christ is that we will all fall down as dead men because Jesus is gonna be in full great glory. It says, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he says, don't, don't, don't fear, I am the first and the last. He says, he says, I am. Remember, that's going back to the, to the book of Exodus when, when Moses is saying, hey, who should I tell him that sent me? He said, say, I am that I am sent you. And he says, I am he that lives. I love this verse, verse 18. I call this the kingdom hall or Jehovah Witness killer. Yeah, you can quote me on that one. He says, I am he that lives. This is Jehovah speaking. This is also Jesus speaking. So when was Jehovah alive? That's my question for you, Mr. J.W. And then, and it says, and was dead. So my other question for you, Mr. J.W., is when did, when did Jehovah die? That's right. It was 2,000 years ago when he died on that cross or that tree, as you like to say. And then my question for you is this, Mr. J.W., when did Jehovah rise from the dead? It says, behold, I am, check it out now, I am in verse number 17, I am in verse number 18a, I am in verse number 18b, alive forevermore. You know what that means, forevermore? It means that Jesus is never going to go back in that grave to die. It means Jesus is never going to go back on that cross to die. You know what I love about the book of Revelation? is in the very first chapter, we see the gospel laid out full, fully. 
We see back in verses 6, 7, and 8 where, where the Bible says that God loved us and how he washed us from our sins. And here we see in verse number 18 that Jesus is the one, the great I am, Jehovah God, clothed in flesh. And he lived a sinners, he lived among sinners, and he died a sinner's death, and he rose victoriously from the grave so that we could live for him forevermore. And it says, Amen. And if that won't get an old deadbeat Baptist shouting, Amen, I don't know what will. And it says, and he has the keys of hell and death. So now we see the gospel really in full entirety. Here we see that hell and death are sometimes synonymous, and they are sometimes in Scripture, but then sometimes they are completely different. Death is like the process that we go through to go to eternity, and hell is the compartment that is the holding containment and a place of imprisonment for all those who do not know Jesus as Savior. So we see the gospel here. We see that God, that John, that Jesus believes in hell. That Jesus believes in the resurrection, that Jesus and John believe in the crucifixion, and that Jesus and John believe that God is able to atone us of our sins. That's the gospel, my friends. That is the gospel. And only one individual has the keys of those things, and that is Jesus. Only one. Satan might think he has the keys, but he doesn't. In fact, he'll be locked up in that, in that prison along with all those who he twisted and took out of heaven with him. Understand this, though, that as we think about hell, I think about the words of Jesus in Matthew 25, where Jesus said that hell was never created or prepared for men, but for Satan and his angels. So we see in verse number 18, we see in verse number 5 and 6, that Jesus Christ has done everything in his capability to save us from our sin. So the reaction is that he fell. <laughs> the vision is he saw Jesus, the glorified risen son. The tribulation is that he was exiled to an island because of his faith. But then the commission in verses 20 and 19. John was commissioned to write down the vision of Revelation. Two times in this text, we see that God commands him in verse 11 and verse number 19. Write down, and here we see the outline of the whole book. He says, write down what you have seen in the past, that is chapter 1. He says, write down what you have seen in the present, that is chapter 2 and 3, about the churches. And then, write down what you have seen in the future, that is chapters 4 through 22. And then verse 20, it says, the mystery you know, the gospel is a mystery. That is, it's a truth that was kept hidden for ages. And we see here that the mystery, that is a truth that God kept hidden and now has revealed it of the seven stars, which he saw in, his, in God's right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. And it says here that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks are the seven churches. Whenever we think of the book of Revelation, you have to think of the book of Daniel. Daniel is the revelation of the Old Testament. And I never fully understood Revelation until we went through the book of Daniel a few years ago. And in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 4, Daniel chapter 5, Daniel chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, we see that God gives Daniel 
vision after vision after vision, or a dream to interpret and a dream to interpret. But in Daniel, in one of Daniel's visions that he saw, we see that that you have to understand that Daniel went to Babylon as a very young man, probably 15, 16, or 17, a very young man, and, and most likely he was made a eunuch by the Babylonian Empire, and there he lived his whole life as a single man serving God, and, and then and we see that, that he, he was even used of God to interpret dreams and all these different things, and, and then time goes that, that, that a leader is raised up and Israel is, is sent back to to. The people of Israel sitting back to their land, and, and Daniel's so old, most likely in his 80s, and maybe even 90s, and he couldn't travel and couldn't make the way because he was so old, so he stays in Babylon, and God gives him another vision about things to come, and in this vision, this is after that God already sent the Israelites back to, to Israel, and he receives another vision about all these horrible things that are going to take place amongst God's people called the time of Jacob's trouble, and so Daniel couldn't handle it, so he falls down and he's about to vomit. And we see that just as John fell down before this vision, Daniel fell down as well. In fact, every single time we read of a vision of this magnitude or God showing up to an individual, revealing his glory, they fall down. So what will it be like when we see Jesus? When we see Jesus in his full glory and splendor, we will be so overwhelmed of the awestruck presence of Jesus Christ that we will fall to our knees. The only question is, will it be too late for you to fall down and worship Well, you have to fall down to your knees and worship him in agony and pain and torment for all eternity? Or will you be able to worship him and his lordship for all eternity in his presence and glory in heaven? This is the vision of Jesus Christ. And we are called to go and tell the world that the King is coming. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel. As a token of my appreciation for you listening today, I would like to give you my free ebook devotional called Jumpstart Your Faith, 30 Days to a Renewed Faith in Christ. Just go to www.pastorbrianratliff.com to download it. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast channel to listen to more messages like today's. And if these messages have been helpful to you, please leave a review. If I could be of any help in your spiritual walk, please let me know by emailing me at pastorbrianratliff at yahoo.com. And one last thing, if you're in Roanoke, please consider joining us for one of our worship services at Clearbrook Baptist Church. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you and have a great week.